Well, Ruth is leaving um, cold weather. Some of you know it's warm today. Yes, we have the air conditioner on, which is weird. Um, but last week we did have snow. That was awesome. First real snow of the year. Uh, it happened to be one of those snow. It was a little more than what they expected, and so then. We're wondering on Saturday, are we going to have church? We ended up having church on Sunday. I know that a lot of you couldn't make it. That's okay. Uh, a lot of you couldn't make it um, last week but um, because of the weather. But uh, So if you didn't make it last week, let me just say Happy New Year. Um, because it's January. It's 2017. Um, it's one of those times where you start to think about, okay, I, I need to focus this year. I need to get things right. Um, and, and I want to... I don't know, maybe you're like me and your New Year's resolution had something to do with the diet. Um, I, I always do that. Um, and it's, we're still here like on January 15th. It's one of those times where a lot of us are still on that diet. Um, that's really good. If you're on a diet, then you'll appreciate uh, my experience. I went to McDonald's recently. I don't know if you've been lately. I went to McDonald's recently and I'm not talking about that McRib sandwich. That's weird. I don't know why people like that. But there's something else on the menu that's new. Um, it's the little numbers, like there's like the, the order, then the little, and then there's a price and it's not like, you know, it doesn't cost $400. I'm like, what is the 400? And then I realized that 400, like that's the calories on the menu of the thing you're about to, they tell you that. I don't know why. Why would they do such a thing? If I'm going to McDonald's, let me just tell you, if I'm going to eat at McDonald's, I want to know nothing of calories. I'm not there. Because I want to know calories. I'm sitting there at the menu, and they have that huge picture. You've been there. The huge picture of that McFlurry. Man, I'm thinking about how good that McFlurry is going to be after I finish my quarter pounder with cheese. And, uh, and then I'm, I'm all right at math. I'm not amazing, but I can do some math. And I start to add this up, and I wait just one second. I, I built my meal online just to show you what it would look like. and Because uh, they let you do that. You can build your meal. I got 1,600, that's one meal, 1,600 calories, 60 grams of fat, and 204 carbs. One meal. Like, I could eat that twice. I'd probably eat that three times in one day. That's just insane. I didn't want to know that. (laughs) McDonald's was so, I mean, you know, you feel me? McDonald's was way more fun before they did this to us. You could go, you could have a great time, you could enjoy that McFlurry, but now they've confronted me with information I would rather not know. Sometimes you may be experienced, I don't know if it's at McDonald's. I mean, some people in here, um, probably it's not McDonald's for you because you have an amazing metabolism and you can eat that twice a day. Um, That might not be you. Your New Year's resolution might be to stop spending so much money at the movies. And so you're, you're sitting there thinking and you run your year-end report and you realize, wait, how much money did I spend at the movies? You don't want to know that. Don't run that report. You know that re- financial reporting and tell you how much you've spent at each merchant? You probably don't want to know how much you spent at the movies. Just like I don't want to know how much I spent at Bojangles because that's my place, man. <laughs> Bojangles is good. If y'all don't, it's good. You're missing out if you don't go. Bowberry Biscuits. Man, I, but I, I did that two years ago. Like I ran a report how much I spent at Bojangles. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you just don't want to know something. There are some things you don't want to know. For me, in the morning, I, I, sometimes I look at that scale and I think, I don't know if I really want to know my actual weight. So let me estimate. 
I'll, I'll use the number that's on my driver's license, right? Because that's not, not actually our weight. That's the number we want our weight to be. And so, oh, that's what I weigh. That's what I weigh. And we show people this is what I weigh. We don't want to get on the scale. We don't want to know what we really, really weigh. I'd rather not know that information. And we'd rather not know because it makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel bad. It makes me feel awkward. If I told you how much I spent at Bojangles, I'd be embarrassed. And it makes us feel, so we don't want to know. We'd rather not know. We'd rather be unaware. They say that ignorance is bliss. And I can tell you I know what they mean when they say that. And I don't want to get too serious, too fast in a message, but I have to be real with you to say, there are a lot of us who do this spiritually. There are a lot of us who do this spiritually. We avoid God because we just don't want to deal with that awkward tension. We avoid, avoid praying. We avoid coming to church. We avoid reading the Bible because we're, we know if we do, we'll be confronted with information that makes us feel awkward, that makes us feel uncomfortable, it makes us feel embarrassed. And so we'd rather just not think about it. We avoid praying because we know if we pray, we'll feel guilty. And I'd rather be comfortable, I'd rather be ignorant, because that seems to be a better place. And so we know it's just more comfortable to avoid God altogether. And so we do. We avoid it. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm not asking for that. But how many of you in this room, how many of you would you admit to yourself there's been a time in my life or there are times regularly in my life where I've avoided God because I don't want to think about my current situation spiritually? Would you admit that to yourself, that I've avoided God at some point in my life because I know that if I think about it, it will make me feel uncomfortable? Listen, if you're one of those people who are brave enough to admit to yourself, yeah, I've done that, or, or that's me, then this passage that we're going to talk about today is going to speak to you. So get excited. It's going to be good. It's a tough passage, but it's going to speak to you if that's you. We started a series last week. Mark started that. Mark's sitting right up here like the closest person uh, to me right now is Mark Lieber. That's pretty cool. Um, but he preached last week. If you missed that, maybe you were one of those people who were snowed in and you missed that, then I would encourage you, please do go back and listen to that message uh, where he gives a big overview picture of the book of Lamentations. That's what we're working through together is Lamentations. He gives a nice overview of that. So if you missed it, it's well worth your time. Maybe your New Year's resolution is to spend some time on the treadmill. You could podcast that. Uh, listen to the sermon as you're doing that, or perhaps it's just in your morning commute. But listen back to that message, because he'll tell you this overview of what Lamentations is all about. Let me summarize it by just saying it's, a, it's an account by an author that most people believe is Jeremiah, who writes about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And he tells that story again, not in a historical perspective, but in a spiritual perspective, because the people needed a spiritual perspective after having dealt with one of the most tragic events that you could ever imagine. And so he writes back about that in a way that's, that's very difficult to read in Lamentations. 
We're in week two, and so therefore we're in chapter two of Lamentations. We're not going to read the entire chapter of Lamentations two together. Um, if you know you get bored enough with what I'm saying up here, you can read that in your Bible um, today. But if you do read it, or if you have read it, maybe some of you read it in preparation today. You know that's a tough, tough passage of Scripture. I mean, it was filled with an account of all of the tragedy. That took place. We started last week with some tragedy of what happened as the city was under siege. And this week, it starts to dive in even deeper to how the people felt. How did they feel? Well, they felt like God was their enemy. And so chapter 2 starts to talk about how they feel as if God is their enemy. As if God is the one who's causing this destruction that they're experiencing. In fact, what's interesting to note is you could look all through chapter 2. You don't see there's, there's no credit at all given to the Babylonians who really are the people who have surrounded their city. And so the people have this experience of anger towards God. And certainly you could not read this without seeing that God is angry at his people. And so there's this parallel feeling of anger that happens in chapter 2. Where God is angry and the people are angry. But right in the midst of that parallel feeling of anger, there's woven together a story of faith. And it's that story of faith that we're going to pull out and we're going to look at. And we're going to spend some time talking about today. Because in the midst of a terrible experience... We're going to find an expression of faith that I think will be helpful for us, especially those of us who um, would admit sometimes I like to avoid reality. So what had happened briefly is that the Babylonian army had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And when they put siege on the city, it wasn't like, let's get all of our big guns and shoot it at the walls all at once. One week, boom, we're done. No, they just surrounded the city and cut off supply and just waited And so months and months go by and the people, all of their food that they had stored up, all the supply dwindles, goes away and they're starving. Chapter two gives some details about the situation of just how bad things had become. It was beyond the point of just being hungry. There were dead bodies laying in the street and no one even had the energy to bury them. And so it talks about the piles of bodies at the end of the street. And the most, the most chilling detail that's, that's given there is of mothers who are unable to feed their children, to care for their own children, their own infants, instead consume them to stay alive themselves. You know, there's, there's reason to pause at descriptions like that. There's reason to let that sit on your heart. And in fact, there's a photo uh, that was on the cover of Time magazine. Is in 1987. I almost was going to show it today. I thought about it, looked it up on the internet, and looked at that photo. It's it's the same idea. It's of a famine that had happened in Ethiopia, and there's a mother who is starving and is holding her infant, trying to feed her, but is producing no milk, and both are dying. And that's the cover of Time magazine, and it says, "What do we do about the famine in Ethiopia?" You know, I thought about showing it to just help us get that picture, but I tell you, the reason I decided not to is I looked at that, and for me, it took me 30 minutes to recover. That's not an exaggeration. 30 minutes to recover, because I just sat at my desk, and all I could think about was that I have a one-year-old infant myself. And all I could think about 
was what it must feel like to sit in a situation desperately wanting to provide for your children and not being able to. I get wrecked me. And so I just prayed. That's the situation in Lamentations chapter 2. That's what people feel. They're experiencing that with their own children. And making a decision that nobody would make. But that it would be better to consume them than to let things go on. So you read Lamentations 2 and it's, it's heavy. It's terrible terrible account of what went on. And you naturally ask the question, well, why? why? Why did this happen? Well, in the middle, middle of chapter 2, verse 17, the question why is answered. It says, The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. God has fulfilled his word. He did what he purposed. For 40 years, Jeremiah had been telling those people over and over and over again. 40 years he had told them, if you don't listen, destruction is going to come. If you don't turn back to God, destruction will come. And they just laughed at him. They mocked him. Even worse, they put him in prison. They persecuted him. They tried to end his words. They said, I don't want to hear any of that. That, that, Those words are nonsense. And what's happening in the account of Lamentations 2 is that these words are actually coming true. You can read in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5 through 10, his message of warning to the people. We're going to look at the description of what that looks like. How does Jeremiah describe that? In chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5, just two verses there. This is what he says. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? I read that passage and I underlined that phrase. My people love to have it so. That's the environment that Jeremiah is in. That's the culture of the people. They're hearing these things that are not true, these messages, everything's all right. They're hearing these messages that everything's okay. And they love it. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear this news from the spiritual leaders. Everything's all right. It's going to be just fine. And Jeremiah is saying, hold on, hold on. It's not going to be fine. But they love to hear those messages of good news. They don't want to hear the hard message. They prefer the popular message. Lamentations 2.14 talks about this. It says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Jeremiah explained what would happen if you don't listen to the word of God and you believe these lies of men. But the people didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear the messages they wanted to hear. In fact, 
as Jeremiah is still persisting, the famine at one of its lowest points, all the water had gone away. They collected rainwater in these huge cisterns and, and it was empty. And what they did, Jeremiah was still saying, listen, listen, this is what's happening. And the military leaders, he was trying to talk to the soldiers. They got so upset at him because he was affecting the soldiers morale. I mean, think about that. It's a lost situation. But they're still they're so stubborn. The leaders are so stubborn that they say, Jeremiah, quiet down. And they take him and they put him into a water cistern, not like a little jar. It said they had to lower him down with ropes. To get him down to the bottom. It's empty. But what it did have in the bottom was mud and grossness. And it said that he sunk down into that mud and the people hoped he would die. Jeremiah didn't enjoy what he was doing. It was no fun thing for him to ring the alarm bells and to say, listen. In fact, he tried to stop saying this news. He tried to stop prophesying. And he said, when I, when I stopped, it felt like I had this fire inside of me. I just have to say it. And so he did. But it was not easy. In fact, the Bible scholars nickname him the weeping prophet because he cried all the time. He wept over his city. You can see why. But in the worst of it, they're still so stubborn, they won't listen. And yet the truth of God's word, Jeremiah knew it. The truth of God's word will stand And in the end, that's what came true for Jerusalem. Total destruction. You know, the truth of God's word doesn't just stand then. It stands now. That we can count on God's word in Scripture being true. It makes me think of a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, preaching about sin and wrath is not popular. Very few people would volunteer, I will take the message to preach on God's wrath. It's not popular. And you know why? Because none of your faces are happy right now. Because it's hard. It's hard to talk about sin. It's hard to talk about wrath. And it's even harder to say, how could that be the God that I know that's loving? I mean, that's hard stuff. And so, Timothy, the passage there just tells us the truth of the culture that you and I know that we live in today. Which is, people don't want to listen about sin. Don't talk about sin. Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. Really don't talk about what you're doing wrong, but certainly don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. Who are you to tell me what I'm doing wrong? God's not full of wrath. No, isn't God loving? You can't be full of wrath and also loving. That God of the Old Testament can't be the God of the New Testament, so let's not listen to that. Certainly no. So we'll only preach on the New Testament. Despite what we want to believe. As much as we would like to ignore God's wrath, we can't. Because it's real. God's wrath is very real. And at the same time that it's real, it's completely justified. 
Now, I know that's hard, but listen to what I... There's no one in no heavenly being at the time that God enacts his wrath on Jerusalem. No heavenly being, eternal heavenly being said, time out, God, that's not that's probably not the right choice. No one disputed that God pouring out his wrath on Jerusalem was wrong. They all knew it was right. And there's no part of God. There's no there's no even whisper in his in his inside of him that would say, Hold on, aren't we also loving? Nothing in God is torn. God doesn't enact wrath in some way as if, oh, well, I guess, I guess I have to. God is always fully justified in his wrath. God is always unified in who he is. And at the same time that God is loving and merciful, he is just and enacts wrath. So this is not a popular message I know. Not one that we like to hear, but it is one that is needed. In fact, if you're going to understand the second part of the sermon today, it says from wrath to favor. If you're going to understand the second part of the sermon today, you have to hear the first. If you understand favor, you have to know wrath. And this is what I mean. If we're to rightly understand our need for salvation, we have to understand sin. We have to understand wrath in order to understand favor. All right, so we'll, let's keep moving. Jeremiah talks about, in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 6, he talks about the situation a little bit more. He uses this good illustration. I like it. He, he talks about how the spiritual leaders, he compares them to doctors. Doctors who hide the symptoms or hide the, uh, the real problem. Here's what that would be like. He's saying it's like going to a doctor. And you go and maybe you complain at the doctor. You say, I have... A pain in my abdomen. And so you go to the doctor, they confirm there's extreme tenderness in the abdomen area. And so then they go and they feel around some more. And they feel right around your appendix, it's really swollen and inflamed. And so the doctor can see, oh, these symptoms are, are there. And it's as if the doctor then says, well, here's what you need. You need some Advil and some Pepto-Bismol. Go on back home. And it's crazy. Nobody does that. I mean, if you've had appendicitis, you know, you're glad you didn't get Advil and Pepto-Bismol. This craziness. But Jeremiah says that's what people are doing. It's like a doctor who doesn't give the cure for the disease. It's sort of, you know, one of these. This is, if you can't see, it's a smoke detector. Hopefully you have them in your home. If not, you can have this one. But hopefully you have them in your home. Um, it's a smoke detector and it really has a simple purpose. It, um, when it detects smoke, it makes a noise. It makes a noise. You can test them for the batteries. It makes a noise like this. And so you, you know that that device, it's really annoying, right? Um, and so if you have this, uh, if you have that in your house, then you know how annoying that is. Imagine this. Imagine waking up in the middle of the night to that noise. And you're the parent and your kids are asleep. I mean, if it's in my house, you don't want the baby to wake up. And so you don't, you're like, rush, how do I make that stop? And you pull the battery out and you say, stopped, all right. Everyone go back to sleep, it's all okay. Uh, no, parent, no parent does that. Who pulls the batteries out of the smoke detector when it goes off and there's smoke on the ceiling? Well, the kids probably don't want 
to be awake. You know, they're sleepy, they're groggy, and they're comfortable in their beds. I'll let them still be asleep. You know, the cra- it's crazy. It's crazy to think about a fire in your home, and instead of reacting appropriately, all we do is just pull the batteries out of the smoke detector to stop the alarm. But listen, we've become way too good at muting the smoke alarm in our lives. We've become way too good at stopping. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear anything about the alarm. Don't tell me that stuff. I just would rather not hear it. You can take the batteries out of the smoke detector instead of trying to find the fire. And I know it sounds nonsense when we're talking about your home. But the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, instead of caring for the spiritual needs of the people and them understanding and having right relationship with God, instead of preaching the message that needed to be preached, which is about sin and repentance and running back to Jesus, they just pop the batteries out because that's what the people wanted. Some of us are willfully pulling the batteries out of the smoke alarm because we don't want to be confronted with the annoying alarm. We don't want to acknowledge that we really need to turn from sin and run back to God. It's what Jeremiah tried desperately to do in Jerusalem. He pointed the way, even to the very end. He wept over the city. You know, long after Jeremiah, Jesus went to the same city of Jerusalem and wept over people who were not too unlike those same people. Jesus wept over the city because of how much, how far they were from him. But Jesus did more than just weep. Jesus paid a penalty to heal them of their real problem, the wound of sin. And that healing, what we sang about just a moment ago, is available for us too. So what about you? Have you decided that you're going to willfully ignore God? Maybe not all things about God. But like there's an area that you know is off limits to God. Because if you really open that up to God, then you know it, that'd, be, that'd be really uncomfortable. But rather than being alarmed, sometimes we're just apathetic. We'd rather just think about how much God loves us than really addressing those difficult issues inside of ourselves. What if we decided today that we're not going to do that anymore? That we're not going to hide from the hard scriptures, that we're not going to hide from the hard teachings, and that we're not going to be afraid of being uncomfortable. We're not going to silence the alarm when it goes off in our life because we know we need to hear it. And even if it costs us something, we'll still listen. I don't know if God's trying to get your attention in a particular area, but I want to share with you a story of a family in our church that really the alarm was going off and they decided it's not something it's not something that can be ignored. And this is just one story and one example of what this might look like, what happens when we choose to pay attention instead of ignoring. Watch this.
Hi, my name is Mike Schubert. Um, as you probably know our family. Uh, we've been here for several years. Um, I was asked to speak today about uh, alcohol. And uh, the story of alcohol in our family goes back several generations. And, um, I think it starts with my grandfather. Um, and even maybe even before that with his mom, there was um, complications in my grandfather's uh, birth. And because of that, um, my grandmother was not able, my great-grandmother wasn't able to have any more children. And for some reason, and I don't know why, but it got to the point where that was a barrier in their relationship and almost as if she held that against them. And so my grandfather got very little um, care and concern and, and nurturing from his mom. And um, at some point along the way, um, you know, for whatever reason, that, that relationship disintegrated to the point where they, they had no relationship. And uh, I believe one of the, the coping strategies that my grandfather used for that um, was alcohol. And so that's how um, I believe he got started in it. My dad started early. I know it was, it was one of those situations where, um, you know, even at a, a young age of like five or six or seven, that they would, my grandfather would give my dad sips of beer, which sounds crazy nowadays. So anyways, it, it, alcohol was something that my grandfather and my dad struggled with um, for all of their life. Uh, my grandfather is still alive. My, my dad is not. Um, alcohol and, and drug dependency um, were a piece of what um, led him to taking his life a few years ago. Um, so here I sit today telling you guys about you know what it's done to our family, and you're probably wondering, so what is it in your life, Mike? To what extent do you struggle with it? Um, I quit a little over a decade ago um, when uh, you know I wasn't. I was raised in a, in a Christian home, but I, I didn't get saved until I um, left and went to college. And, and really, it was through the, uh, my wife ministering to me as I came to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. Um, you know, I, I drank in college. Um, I didn't quit right away after I got saved. We were living in Winston-Salem, which was the uh, third place we lived um, after being married. And uh, I'd gotten involved at the church, and um, they'd asked me to teach... Sunday school, and I was teaching that a little bit, and they'd ask someone asked me to, to help lead the youth, and I was doing that, and it, um, just kind of weighed upon me that um, the same thing that I was telling the kids not to do, and um, talking about why it's, it's not good, was something that you know I still casually did, and you know probably still too often, and uh, at some point, and um, I won't discount the prayers of my wife through this process because she's. I know that she faithfully prayed to the Lord for years that I would uh, just stop. Um, I got to the point where I said, you know, I just I can't continue to to hypocritically say don't do this, but be involved in it. So I quit. There's a scripture in the Bible um, in Numbers chapter 14. I want to read it for you. It says, "The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity and transgression." But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I think a lot of people hear that scripture and they it feels to them like a curse. 
Um, like God is wrathful and vengeful. Um, over the years, though, as I've gotten to know my family history better, to me it's, it's, it's more wisdom. It takes sometimes generations for sin to work itself out. And uh, whoever starts in it, um, it, just, it, it consumes them. And uh, the way that they treat the next generation, they raise their children, it consumes in, consumes them. And uh, I know in my dad, in my case, my dad tried to be everything his dad wasn't. And my father was a great dad. Um, but alcohol was something that he couldn't kick. Um, though he tried to instill in me values and um, strengths in other areas, it was, it, was, it was just part of who he was. And, you know, I'm thankful to say the challenges with alcohol in our family stop with me and my brother. We're the we're the last ones that are going to have to deal with it. We've um, we're raising our families and and modeling um, you know abstinence from that um, just because of the, the danger in our family. I I'm not here to tell you that you can't drink. I'm not here to 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 make a judgment or decision upon you if if it's something that you struggle with or something that you just enjoy. Um, but I know for our family, it just doesn't work. And we've seen generations of it. And so the, the wisdom of that, that scripture in Numbers just kind of rings true. And that it took, it's taken three and four generations to, uh, for that to work itself out in our family. And I'm uh, prayerful and I'm hopeful that uh, it's not something my kids ever feel um, like it's something that they want to try to experience. I'm, just, I'm thankful for a God that gives us second chances and is patient. Be thankful for the ability to come back in a relationship with them. It's, it's hard to be in relationship with the Lord when you're so consumed with uh, things that are very attractive and addictive in this, in this world. And at least for us, uh, you know, alcohol is certainly one of those. So that's a story of one, one man and one family who decided that he was no longer going to stop facing the reality of generational addiction. And that the reality of that meant that he had to do something. And so he decided that he was going to rewrite the course of the history for the Schubert family. The script was going to change. I love what he said. He said that the generational problem will end with he and his brother. You know, unfortunately... There are many families who wouldn't tell that same story. There are many families who experience something similar to that, and they experience much of their life with someone refusing to face reality. If you were to ask someone in a situation like that, with generational addiction to a substance, then they would probably lie when, they, when you ask them, how often do you drink? And it's not that they want to lie to you as much as they need to lie to themselves. You know, it's not too unlike the nutritional menu at McDonald's. I don't want to know how many calories are there. I want to hear a lie. Listen, we know we're not perfect. We know that. But sometimes in our efforts to avoid reality, we just choose Blindness. We've become way too good at muting the smoke detector, at pulling the batteries out. But we have to one ask ourselves, is there something that God needs us to hear? Is there something today that God needs you to hear? 
Is there a message that he's been trying to get you to hear? And instead of listening for a long time, you've just been pulling the battery out of the smoke alarm and going on and pretending like I didn't hear anything and hoping that because we're ignorant, that because we didn't know, or we didn't, I didn't know, God, that somehow God's going to have mercy on our ignorance. The Bible, that's not the way it works in Scripture. God does not have mercy because of ignorance. So is God trying to get your attention today? Is there a way that you need to respond? God's call is not that you have to start doing a whole bunch of Christian work in order to earn back his favor. That's not how the favor works. God's favor comes to us freely through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, it says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more then shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's good news for everyone in here. This is not something you have to earn. It's favor that's freely given. And we no longer have to fear wrath. We're going to sing a song, in fact, that says, The wrath of God was satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. What a great lyric that we're going to sing today. Do you need to accept that for the first time today? Because if you do, then the invitation is there. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing that song before the throne of God above. And if you need to come forward to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to do that. If you want to come forward and just start a conversation to talk about what it looks like, maybe to pray with someone, you can come forward. I'll be up here waiting for you. If you want to come forward and respond today and just say, I would, I would like to join with First Christian Church and be a kingdom worker alongside of you, and you've been baptized and you're committed to the Lord, then we'd invite you to come forward as well. However you need to respond, the invitation exists for you now as we stand and as we sing.